Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, we go inside the epic takedown of Spam House, and then we'll break down why Cloudflare's flexible SSL is the exact opposite of security. Then it's a great big batch of your questions, our answers, and a rockin' roundup. All that and a heck of a lot more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everybody, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 195 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on December 18th, 2014. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this year's show goes on. Our live stream, why that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should go check it out. It's really quite amazing. We've been using it for a long time now. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hey, Alan, uh, you time traveler. I noticed that uh, you happen to have a pretty nice shirt on there, too. Yes. You got have, the, uh, uh, that's the charcoal gray Jupiter Broadcasting polo. Yes. That looks really sharp. A much more comfortable than I was expecting. I was expecting more of a, like a work shirt yeah, kind it, of thing. But and the way it sits no, is very, very comfy, comfortable. right? Yeah, I know. Yes. I got it. Just, and the material is very soft. I like it. I should have, we could have been twinsies. I, I should have brought mine. I, I, I should have been thinking, Alan. Well, so uh, this is technically the release of this episode will be on the 1st of January. Now of we're next uh, year. Yeah. Or this year or whatever year it is. So we couldn't just let the occasion pass without maybe just throwing out there a one prediction or two. Yeah. Um, do you want me to start with mine? Because mine's kind of... Oh, yeah, you can, you can do yours first. Yeah, I like yours a lot. Mine is, uh, I predict over 2015 that there's going to be some hard lessons learned in the container space, specifically on Linux. I think there's going to be a lot of really awesome gains. Um, Rocket, I suspect, is going to be pretty impressive, and I think Docker will continue to see a lot of enterprise-level adoption. But somewhere in there... I don't know if it'd be a breach or a really well-respected research paper or a, maybe it's a presentation at Black Hat. But I think at some point there's going to be a hard knock lesson for containers. And 2015 will be the year we realize, okay, we've jumped in really hot on this on the Linux space, but now there's some things we need to sort of dial back and work out. I know it's not like a groundbreaking prediction, but I think it's probably pretty solid. So containers will be good and bad? <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's going to be containers continue to get deployed, but this year, 2015, yep. will be the year we realize there is some security issues that have yet to be totally resolved. All I right. suspect. All right, Alan, what's your big prediction for 2015? Uh, I think uh, it'll be the thing I'm going to be keeping a big eye on and, and watching closely and seeing how it changes everything is uh, SMR, or shingled magnetic recording. Mm. Uh, this is Seagate's new technology where uh, basically up until now the way hard drives have worked is you write data in tracks on the disk. Right. Um, but um, basically with the way the technology is now, the size of the head needed to read the data is a lot smaller than the size of the head needed to write the data. So their idea is to like overlap, the, right, the, so say the track is this wide, you would overlay tracks like shingles on your roof um, now, uh, this is going to be kind of adjustable depending on how much, uh, depending on the workload, you'll want a different amount of overlap, right? You'll get a lot more storage. The more overlap you have, the more storage you have, but the bigger penalty you have every time you have to write. Because when you want to write data, when you have it shingled like this, especially the bottom shingle, basically, you have to read all the layers, pick them up, and then rewrite them down in the correct order. Uh, mm. And so these drives are going to have an area of flash on them where they can spool that up and, and take care of it. 
Uh, and so they'll almost start becoming like SSDs with having like a flash translation layer or something where, you know, the sectors won't actually necessarily be laid out how you would expect them uh, or how the computer expected them to be. One of the big differences here is that they're planning on two different models of these. Uh, one version being what's called host-aware, where the drive is actually going to let the operating system know what's happening as far as these huh. moving around and stuff are, so that the uh, operating system or the file system can take advantage of that information and, and make changes and optimize and so on. So uh, is your prediction these, will go, these are going to become pretty common or more popular um, in 2050? I don't know if I have prediction. I just uh, I know that this is a thing that's uh, probably going to be a big deal. Yeah, uh, I've already seen a, a number of conversations about it and how that will interact with ZFS, especially... Uh, with the fact that ZFS is copy and write and it's log structured, uh, without the host-aware part, it could mean the drive is is working basically against you all the time. Mm. Uh, but with the host support, it could mean that you're because you uh, in ZFS you write blocks in big chunks and you don't go and overwrite that block over there uh, as frequently. It means that you could actually uh, optimize to actually basically work with the SMR even better. Right, because every time you change a block, you don't go and have to try to change the middle of that okay. layer of shingles over yeah, here. Right, you just write all the data again over here. So if it was and aware, collect it over there. Yeah, so then it can take care of the garbage collection, and maybe um, you can signal the drive. All right, uh, I've trimmed here, here, and here. So you know, there's only these two shingles out of this stack of eight shingles left. Let's rewrite them with the next batch over and, here, uh, and and keep it all clean. This, there's already a drive they're getting close to shipping, right? A five uh, terabyte. I think they've already they're shipping an eight terabyte uh, okay. SMR drive uh, that's actually covered in our, one of our roundup stories later oh, yeah, on. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, they they mentioned it. They don't really get into the details. They don't have them yet. Uh, in particular, they're just starting to become available. So it's not like you can go to the store and buy one very easily at yeah. this point. But yeah, well, you know, uh, you could see how it, I mean, it would it would behoove. Uh, ZFS to be able to support that natively because it, that kind of high that high capacity storage is going to be perfect for a file server. Exactly. Uh, you know who would be probably following these cutting edge trends and integrating it immediately and totally understanding it from the beginning? That'd be IX Systems. Yep. And you can find out more and totally understand IX Systems by going to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Check out some of their awesome hardware powered by those Intel Xeon processors and download their ultimate guide to buying a new server for open source. It's 11 key traits. you got to demand from your provider they won't spam you. It's just a really, it's a really good PDF or an ebook that you can download. Yeah. Uh, IX Systems. It's, it's that kind of flashy marketing material stuff that you would get from a competitor like Dell or HP or somebody that the management type people expect, uh, and it basically allows IX to be sitting on the same level as those instead of looking like some small group because they're actually quite big and. Uh, if you look at their client list, you can see that they're taken very seriously by some serious people. Yeah, they, their client list is, is pretty awesome. We do like to pull it up from time to time. They've got everybody on there from Walt Disney to Sony to U.S. Army to Adobe. Uh, they've got Wise on there, VMware, GM, Juniper, Verisign, Autodesk, University of Florida, Berkeley. Look at all these. AdBright, Justin.TV, SurveyMonkey, LinkedIn, Evernote, Twitch, Yelp, Tumblr, Scale Engine. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, I, I was I was serious too when I say they'll be watching these shingled drives because uh, they have a couple of products that are pretty closely tied to big storage, like TrueNAS, yep. but also FreeNAS. And just a reminder mm-hmm. that FreeNAS nine point three was recently released, and yep. you can go check it out. Man, and, uh, all that new—it's integrating a bunch of interesting uh, boot environment stuff they got from uh, um, PCBSD, which they also sponsor. Yeah. Yeah, like uh, the, doing the uh, snapshots for the updates, right, and whatnot, for the OS updates. The boot environments, I'm sorry, the ZFS boot environments. That kind of stuff is really cool. 
so I guess I need to update my free NAS server then. I guess what that I guess that's what that means. So go check them out, ixsystems.com slash techsnap. And a big thank you to IX Systems for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Yep. Also, they have a true NAS that's all SSDs. Uh, and uh, is the first one they ship uh, where they recommend you can use DDoop. Uh, it's designed for backing VMs uh, with VMware and so on. Nice. That's crazy good. All right, Alan, our first story this week comes from Mr. Krebs, the author of Spam Nation, and uh, yep. he he updates us on some interesting stories. This is kind of like in his area now of expertise. Where exactly. He's yeah. So what's going on? Uh, so Krebs is covering the story about the arrest of one of the people responsible for the Spam Hoss attack. If you remember back, oh, 95 weeks ago or so, <laughs> uh, I think it was episode 102 of TechSnap where we first talked about it, and then we dug in more on 104. Uh one of the very first of those um, DNS reflection attacks. Mm. And at the time, it was, oh, the biggest denial service attack ever or whatever. Yes, I remember. But, I remember, yes. Uh, yes. In particular, um, some people that were upset about being uh, blocked by SpamHoss, which is a spam blacklist, uh, decided to do a denial service attack against them. Uh, and so SpamHoss uh, employed uh, Cloudflare to protect them, and it ended up taking down Cloudflare as well. But... Um, uh, one of the people responsible for this is 17-year-old uh, from London, England, in the UK. Has uh, pled guilty and uh, hmm. for having carried out the denial of service attack hmm. uh, against the anti-spamming outfit. 17-year-old, huh? Yep. Uh, he was 16 at the time, actually. Uh, so in late March 2013, a massive distributed denial of service attack hit the website of SpamHoss, and they then, uh, who maintains the blacklist of spammers, and they also have uh, a couple other things where they um, not just blocking like IP addresses and domains, but actually type, figuring out which person's actually behind the spam and following them around and making their life difficult uh, so that they can't just start again with a different name, which is what spammers often do. Um, <clears throat> so then the, you know, the New York Times actually called it the, uh, the biggest attack uh, ever and said that the combined assault was the largest known denial of service attack ever, although I think they got their information from Cloudflare, not someone that knows what they're talking about. Oh, uh, so Cloudflare also dubbed it uh, the attack that almost broke the internet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in particular, um, the attack wasn't necessarily larger than anything that the major ISP sees every day. However, uh, it was a little clever in that they were attacking the uh, route servers at the uh, internet exchanges, in particular the London Internet Exchange. Now that address is actually not supposed to be reachable from the internet. Uh, it's only supposed to be reachable by the people that are directly connected to the London Internet Exchange. But due to a misconfiguration, one or more of the members of the London Internet Exchange was leaking a route that allowed people to get there. And by attacking that, that basically dropped all the peering there. Mm -hmm. And that's a large portion of the traffic that flows through that exchange. Hmm. And that caused the problem. Uh, but, you know, as a response to Cloudflare's claims where, you know, they were up on the news and on uh, New York Times and so on, uh, evangelizing how they were, oh, we saved this company from like the biggest attack. It would have broke the Internet, whatever. Well, the actual CTO of one of the backbones uh, had his little response post where he explains uh, where things they said that were not technically true and so on. And then we uh, tore into it a bit more in uh, that yeah. episode 104 of TechSnap, which yeah. I also linked to. But the Krebs article actually digs into the rest of the story, uh, the stuff that the rest of us, we, we don't know about. Uh, so uh, Krebs was actually digging into the website that was responsible for, take, for attacking uh, spam house called Stop Hoss. This is uh, the group that wanted Spam Hoss to go away because they were making the life of these spammers difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and you know the spammers believe that it's uh, their legitimate right to run a business uh, ruining the internet for the rest of us. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and the uh, quote here says, this seems to be a uh, good time as any to look deeper into who's likely the founder and driving force behind the stop loss movement itself. And uh, after much research, uh, Krebs says, all signs point to an angry failed spammer living in Florida who runs an organization that calls itself the Church of Common Good. No. Uh, the list is leader as Andrew J. Stevens, uh, whose LinkedIn page and short name is Stevens Boy. Uh, says that he's a media mercenary at a same organization, the wow. Church of the Common Good or this whatever. This guy is classic. Uh, uh, hours after the story, uh, he changed a lot of the stuff, took a bunch of stuff off his LinkedIn page, but Krebs, being smart, had saved a screenshot of it as a PDF before going live with the story. Hilarious. So that his evidence couldn't be pulled out from underneath Very him. Very smart. He also went and found uh, Stephen's old website from 2011, uh, that he it was like andrewjstevens.com or something like that. And his uh, resume lists a stint in 2012 as the owner of an email marketing firm called Digital Dollars and then IVT. Uh, money-making schemes, which Stephen described as a beginning to intermediate level guide to successful list, uh, list marketing in today's email environment, incorporates the use of both white hat and some sketchy techniques you could find uh, on black hat forums, but have uh, avoid anything illegal or unethical. And so is is and then under his featured work uh, stuff, he lists the spam hosp or the stop host project, yeah, uh, black hat learning center, and a link uh, to a spam software called Quicksend 1.0. Hmm. <clears throat> uh, and he digs in and, and shows how he found the guys uh, and linked all the information together and actually found this guy as uh, one of the people behind it. And then he also has a short interview with uh, some other people as well. Uh, but his closing note was uh, the good one. He says, uh, putting spammers and other bot feeders uh, into jail for denial of service attacks may be cathartic and you know make you feel like we're actually doing something, uh, but it certainly doesn't solve the underlying problem. Uh, the raw material needed to launch the attacks of this size that hit spam house and Cloudflare uh, are plentiful and freely available online. Right, uh, Lots of people that have not updated routers and that NTP attacks, you know, uh, the a couple of groups have been doing a good job of like emailing everybody who's ever sent one of these DNS reflection packets and being like, Hey, you got to fix your stuff. You're ruining the internet. <laughs> uh, and it's helped a lot, but you know, as far as bots, you know, the, the number of bots is not really going down as people still have thousands of infected windows machines, oh, yeah. millions of infected windows machines. Oh yeah. And if people just clean those up, the, uh, there'd be a lot less spam and a lot fewer denial of service attacks in the world. Yeah. A lot, a lot, uh, a lot. <clears throat> And a so lot of less Krebs, machines under control. Yeah, and so uh, Krebs says, as he noted in the uh, second to last chapter in his book, Spam Nation, uh, the bad news is that little has changed since these ultra-powerful attacks uh, first surfaced more than a decade ago. That's uh, also true. Uh, uh, yeah, sad, like true. literally nothing has changed with botnets, uh, denial of service attacks, and, uh, and spamming, except uh, the DNS reflection and it was kind of a, a new thing for a little while, but that we clamped down on that pretty hard, but uh, the main thing there is that uh, the big DNS servers that were being used in the reflections actually just had a lot bigger connections. Right. So having a thousand of those yeah. is better than having ten thousand desktops. Yeah. But yeah. Well, very interesting to see that kind of from that perspective. And Brian Krebs always has some great information. Yeah, I definitely uh, recommend you check out the post. It goes in a lot more detail than uh, I could go through in the show. 
All right, Alan. Well, I got some details for you. That's our friends over at Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com. Won't you go there? Go there right now, won't you? Just go there and uh, say, hey, thanks for supporting the show by visiting Mm -hmm. techsnap.ting.com. In fact, while you're there, let's do a thought exercise. Click on that savings calculator. Plug in your current information to Ting, because here's what's great about Ting. No contract, and you only pay for what you use. So you plug in how much you actually use, not how much the uh, telco has convinced you to prepay for, but your actual usage. Put that info in there and do the calculation. If you're like me, it's about $2,000 every two years. That's enough to buy a new laptop every two years. TechSnap.ting.com will give you $25 off your first device. If you've already got a compatible device because you can bring your own, they'll give you $25 in service credit. And Ting has a lot of really great devices on their page. I've pulled out a couple that I would recommend. A few ranges here. $88. The Kyocera Kona. It's a feature phone, straightforward, basically lasts you a few days, maybe even longer. Has integrated Bluetooth, so it'll still work if you have a car that has Bluetooth functionality. $88 for this phone. And then you just you own it. It's yours. There's no contract. $6 for the line, and then just your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. That's how Ting bills you. They just take whatever you use and add it up. Uh, another recommendation, you want to go on the higher end. $340 for an HTC One M7. This is one of my favorite phones of all time. This is one of the Cadillac Android phones with incredible front-facing speakers that are excellent for podcast listening. You won't need an external audio box. You won't need to hook it up to anything. You can. I, I used to drive around in my truck listening to podcasts on those speakers. That is a great phone. $340 from Ting shipped. That's really nice. TechSnap.Ting.com to get $25 off these devices. Uh, there's also the Nexus 5, the go-to, right? And as Ting begins to roll out GSM in February, having something like the Nexus 5 where you can go CDM or GSM, CDMA or GSM, is really, really a nice option. Lots of great devices, techsnap.ting.com. Try out the savings calculator. Visiting there is also a vote for the TechSnap show, showing them that you appreciate them supporting us, and it gives you a chance to check them out techsnap.ting.com. I've been using Ting now for uh, a couple of years. I've never really had to call their customer service. They have a, they have a no-hold customer service. You can call them at 1-855-TING-FTW uh, on Allen's East Coast time. It's got to be East Coast time. And a real person answers the phone. But I've always just been able to take advantage of their really great dashboard. I've always been able to just troubleshoot it right there and uh, activate, deactivate, move lines around, stuff like that. techsnap.ting.com. Thanks, Ting. Uh, hey, Alan, I believe uh, we have some more Cloudflare coverage, don't we? Yes. All right. So what are we going to now? Uh, so this is a, a post uh, kind of breaking down the problems with uh, Cloudflare's SSL operating systems that they're trying to promote right now. Uh, so they have a couple of different ways you can choose to do SSL with Cloudflare. Uh, the first one they call flexible SSL. And uh, this is the one where basically they give a certificate issued by Cloudflare for the, your site. Um, and then so the user visits Cloudflare and they get an SSL connection and it looks secure, but the data is then retransmitted from Cloudflare to your server without SSL. What? Really? Yeah. So this is for if you don't have SSL, you can use Cloudflare to upgrade to having SSL, but the data is not only encrypted part of the way through. Uh, so that's not very useful. <laughs> uh, and there's a bunch of other problems with that. Then they have full SSL, which is uh, they have SSL from the visitor to Cloudflare where they then decrypt it, play with it a bit, and then re-encrypt it and send it with SSL to your server. Uh, however, this one allows a 
untrusted certificate. So you can just use a self-signed certificate. You don't actually buy an SSL certificate. So you still get the encryption, but you're not really getting the authorization necessarily. Okay. Although since it's only Cloudflare is actually going to be connecting directly to your server, you can still actually uh, use it to secure things. But right, I follow. There's other problems with that, and we'll get to that in a minute. And then they have what they call strict SSL, uh, which is where your server has to have a real certificate. Okay. Uh, but again, because Cloudflare is decrypting it and then re-encrypting it on their end, they can see everything in the middle because part of their software is analyzing the traffic and also optimizing your website. Mm. And uh, so obviously that requires them to not just pass the traffic back and forth, otherwise they're not really not doing any good. Mm -hmm. uh, so to break it down a bit more, uh, so the flexible SSL makes it easy to create a secure channel or a secure connection uh, and have it mean nothing, right? Because the user's encrypted from them to Cloudflare, but it's not encrypted from Cloudflare to your server. So someone snooping can see the credit card numbers or whatever is being transmitted. Uh, do you need uh, a trusted certificate for the latest phishing scam? Uh, then just host on a regular insecure web server somewhere and then set up Cloudflare in front of it, and all of a sudden you have encryption uh, to your <laughs> spam server. Yeah. Or your phishing server or, or your, your fake website or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the issue is that to buy a real SSL certificate costs money, takes time, you have to organize it, they look at who's doing it, whatever. Uh, but you can set up hundreds of sites uh, for free and then use Cloudflare to get SSL for them. So that's not uh, really that good. Is it? Mm -hmm. So he said, uh, the author says here, I'm not giving the reader a brilliant criminal idea. I'm sure this is rather obvious to any serious cyber criminal uh, that creates these realistic website copies and then uh, the appealing emails that lead people to them. Uh, they've been trying to emulate the security feature of real website, but setting a trusted SSL has been challenged. Now SSL is within their reach, even without the minimum knowledge on how to actually configure SSL on the server. And in particular, it subverts the idea of a secure channel because it's not secure by any reasonable definition given that data is transmitted in the clear at some point during the connection. Yeah. So you're really just tricking your user into thinking it's secure when it's not because it's only secure for part of the connection. Uh, you know, at some point, it's just traveling over the public internet. It also uh, kills the idea of authentication. Given you no longer are interacting with the website's actual servers, you're not really getting proof that you're dealing with the correct website, right? Hmm. Uh, the whole point of SSL is that when you go to the website and you and the certificate is trusted, you know that the website you're talking to is actually who they claim to be. Right. But in the case of this setup, all you're really proving is that this is a person using Cloudflare, not that it's actually the website you want necessarily. That's right? very true, yeah. And it opens up a whole new scheme where people could hack the Cloudflare account and then redirect the traffic to a different backend server. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what I was and thinking. So on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it kills the idea of trust since thousands of bo uh, bogus certificates emitted this way will not ensure user security. Uh, you know, it kind of breaks the whole trust model of the entire web. Uh, and he has a couple of links at the bottom of this actually happening, Cloudflare being used to host malware and phishing sites. Uh, so then he goes on. Uh, I'm not, uh, he says he's all for proliferating SSL and having everybody have access to SSL. Uh, the security is indeed too difficult for the average webmaster to figure out. This means, unfortunately, that most websites that ask for your private data send it in the clear. Certainly, SSL for everyone would be better than that. Uh, he says he'd argue that not really. Not only does it empower anyone to create malicious websites, like you just mentioned, mm -hmm. but it empowers people who don't know security to do it badly. 
and to make flexible SSL available, the easiest default option is just that. Hmm. So you end up, people think they're doing security because they enabled this flexible SSL, not realizing that half the connection isn't encrypted. Uh, or, you know, even if they have the SSL, you know, if they don't understand how SSL works, um, just turning it on and thinking they've solved all the problems is is not helping at all, right? And then it raises the bigger question, do you trust Cloudflare entirely, right? You, you know, if you enable this universal SSL, it gives users a sense of security uh, that the data they are sending is protected from the prying eyes of attackers. Remember, though, in this setup, Cloudflare has access to the entire data stream in clear text, right? Because uh, it's encrypted from the user to Cloudflare, then Cloudflare decrypts it, looks at it, changes it, re-encrypts it, and sends it. So it's also uh, affecting the... Uh, the other part of SSL, which is once something's encrypted, you can tell if it's been modified and you throw it away and don't use it if it's been modified. But because Cloudflare is sitting in the middle as this trusted party, they can decrypt it, change it, and re-encrypt it and send it. Uh, and that causes problems, right? So that's your transmission is only as secure as Cloudflare's infrastructure, right? Mm -hmm. One zero-day exploit is all it would take to read traffic for potentially millions of websites with a single attack. Uh, and, you know, this means it could take more than one attack, but certainly not proportional to the number of websites affected, right? Normally, you would have to attack each website individually, but if right. you just go after Cloudflare, yeah, they're yeah. one big weak link. For sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, then they have the full SSL option, uh, which allows you to use an untrusted certificate between your server and Cloudflare. And then Cloudflare uses a real certificate between uh, Cloudflare and your users, but Cloudflare still gets to snoop on everything. So even though they're not sending it to you in plain text, they're still snooping on it before they send it on to you encrypted. This kind of uh, this makes some sense now. When when we were looking at Heartbleed and how one of the one of the places Google worked with immediately behind the scenes was Cloudflare, right? Well, I don't know if it was Google, but somebody somebody did it at Cloudflare, Google. Yeah. yeah. Do you think maybe this setup is why because they are responsible for so many people's. Uh, I, in a sense, identity Possibly. because they are they're kind of representing their customers in a sense doing it this way. Yes, and if they had been vulnerable to Heartbleed uh, when it first came, if they hadn't had the advance notice, uh, then yeah, they're just huge numbers of sites could have had their keys leaked. Yeah, uh, just by going after Cloudflare. So it doesn't even have to be it doesn't even have to be some sort of master hack of Cloudflare. It could just simply be right. a vulnerability in the software. And then, you know, he raises the point that, sure, Cloudflare may actually be in a better position than you to combat a zero-day, uh, but what about for combating the government? The government comes up and says, hey, Cloudflare, we want to snoop on everything. Yeah. Usually, once And, oh, here's a gag order so you can't mention it. Yeah, once it's centralized like that, it usually just makes it easier for them. Exactly. You know, instead of having to con a lot of people, they, the government has one go-to target. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, while Cloudflare tells itself it's providing SSL for everyone, we're left to question if that's actually a good thing. And whether, you know, some SSL is actually as useful as having end-to-end -end SSL. And in particular, this isn't end-to-end, -end, right? It's, there's something in the middle yeah. that's basically uh, doing a man-in-the-middle attack. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's just a trusted man-in-the-middle. Yeah. But how much do you really trust them? Uh, and, you know. Well, how can I mean, whenever you, it's just, it's not even a matter of like them really, so the, much. Uh, the disaster scenario here is someone hacking Cloudflare and injecting malware in the middle when, when Cloudflare is modifying the content uh, and then all of a sudden this website you trust with the SSL certificate and everything and Gosh, malware. Wow. Especially when you look at, you know, uh, certain things like Java will give more trust to a website if it has SSL. Yeah. Right? Because yep. you know that nothing's been modified. Mm -hmm. hmm. 
But yeah, is it, should people that don't understand how SSL works really be hosting sites using SSL? You know, are we giving a false sense of security to the user by letting people that don't know what they're doing have this? Hmm. Uh, the, of course, that question comes up with that other project that we talked about a couple of weeks ago from, I think, Mozilla and a couple other people. What's it called? Every SSL or something? Yeah. Remember that one? But anyway. Yep. Uh, but, you know, this leaves uh, the person running the website that doesn't know what they're doing but thinks that it's secure because they've enabled this checkbox and now uh, they have SSL. And the users trusting things are secure when they likely aren't and trusting Cloudflare when maybe that's not the best idea. Uh, but, yeah, you should definitely check out the blog article here, and it digs into it more detail. It includes uh, a post from uh, Netcraft where we see uh, various phishing scams using Cloudflare to get uh, legitimate certificates and so You can find a link to that in the show notes. Just go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, look for episode 195 of TechSnap, and then scroll down right past the download links, and just about everything we covered is listed in the show notes in chronological order. Yes, I see Nefcraft found things like uh, paypal-germany.de.com and uh, paypal-verification, spelled the German way, .com, and uh, with all with valid-looking SSL certificates that were easy enough to fool people. There you go. Good read, Al. Thank you for finding mm-hmm. that. <clears throat> and uh, all right. Uh, any, thought, any other thoughts on that? No? Uh, all right. No. Okay. Well, then why don't I tell you all about DigitalOcean. Head over to DigitalOcean and use our promo code SNAPDECEMBER. Now, this is the transition time, so you probably also have a win with Snap January. But Snap December should work for a little while, and that's going to give you a $10 credit over at DigitalOcean. And I think you're going to want to use this. And it's, gonna, it's really cool because the way it works is you apply it to your account. I really like that. So I go and I just fund my DigitalOcean account from time to time. And why do I use them? In fact, I've got several systems up there, and I've been using them for a while. Well, let's get started with what really DigitalOcean is all about. They're a simple cloud hosting provider that's dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to get going and spin up your own cloud server. You can get started in less than 55 seconds, and pricing plans start only $5 per month. Remember, now I said you get a $10 credit when you use the promo code SNAPDECEMBER. So the, the... that's two months right there because they're starting at $5 a month. You're going to get 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer for that $5. But, you know, when you're using our promo code, Snap December, well, then you're going to get two months, so it's not going to cost you anything for two months. they got data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and London. But it's that interface. Oh, man, they got a great interface. And a very intuitive control panel. They've managed to strike a balance between power, because they've got you know full-fledged DNS management, snapshot management, HTML5 consoles, so you can watch the whole thing boot up, one-click deployment of things like Docker and GitLab and Rails and PHP and WordPress and all of that. You can choose between the distributions you want to run with. Uh, So they've really got a great interface. But on top of that great interface, they've written a really first-class API that you can take advantage of, and you can replicate the functionality on a larger scale. Or if you're like me, and you're not going to take advantage of it, you can at least take advantage of some of the stuff that the community has created. Uh, Like uh, here, for example, is a DigitalOcean puppet module. This module provides uh, the ability for you to manage your DigitalOcean droplet right from Puppet, which is really cool. Uh, Here's another example. Somebody wrote a really nice... DigitalOcean management app for Android. It's called DigitalOcean Swimmer. And you can uh, manage the functions of your droplets. You can SSH into the droplet, reboot, power cycle, shut it down, resize, take snapshots, restore, turn backups on or off. You can even create servers from the app. Uh, And here's another app. This one's for, uh, for iOS. And it looks really nice. 
Uh, and again, same kind of thing. Really good interface to manage this stuff from your phone. If you have a problem, you can just do a reboot there. Now, these are all different applications, and there are a lot more than just these. If you go to their community section, they have a page that outlines a ton of them. There's so many great things you can use. You know, And some of them are just like libraries for PHP. There's like a DigitalOcean API library for PHP. Mm-hmm. How, how great is that? Uh, there's a ton of great stuff that the community is writing around this awesome API. So go over to DigitalOcean, check them out. Use the promo code SNAPDECEMBER to get the $10 credit. And if you, you know, if you're a whiz on something, they're willing to pay people for tutorials because it's an area they're really investing in. We've got a link in the show notes, uh, $100, $200 for a tutorial, and their editing staff will work with you. So it's really cool. And, and then if, if nothing else, you can just take advantage of great tutorials. They've got some of the best. DigitalOcean.com, Snap December. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. All right, Alan. Well, that's everything I think we have in the news segment, isn't it? Uh, I suppose there's probably a new BSD now out while we're recording right now, but uh, I don't know what it was. But you guys did have one for the for the week, right? Yep. Yeah, you guys are on top of it. All right, well, then there you go. That's all the news. You can go to techsnap.reddit.com to help contribute to our news. But with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website or even better, starting a thread in our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com like our first email this week. And it comes in from play to Python, play, uh, play to Python, something like that, platy Python. Platy, let's go with platy Python, Alan. And he wants, to, he wants to get your intakes on a distributed file store. He says he's got 80 mm-hmm. servers with anywhere between 6 terabytes and 12 terabytes of 4,000 to 1 megabyte files per machine. Uh, He says millions of tiny files. Right now, all of the files are accessed through an HTTP front-end backed by a local POSIX file system. It's kind of like Extended 4. The millions of tiny files are in the web root, basically. It's beginning to get uh, alt, uh, beginning to get unwieldy. After doing about 15 hours of research, I'm thinking of going with ClusterFS, starting off uh, using a POSIX file system-based store and eventually moving to a key object store since the files are ultimately accessed over HTTP anyway. Uh, I've read through that uh, millions of tiny files can be slow in this scenario and that Hardoop or Ceph, if I'm saying that right, uh, might, uh, Hadoop or Ceph, yeah. Yeah, Hadoop or Ceph, okay, might be a better fit. Is there a better way of attacking this? I need redundancy in case of individual hard drive crashes or a server dies and need to be performant and stable. Everything else would just be gravy. Alan, any thoughts for this one? Uh, I've actually been looking at uh, ClusterFS for the same thing because uh, we basically do the same thing. We divide our customers up between different servers. We call SC Store 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, it gets a little pain when... a Older customers all of a sudden start uploading a bunch of extra files and they're running out of uh, space or something. And it'd be nice if we could just say, you know, uh, here's one unified namespace where it has the storage of all these servers and every file gets stored in at least two of the servers in case one of them goes offline. Or even if we just want to turn one off to upgrade it or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, yeah, I've been looking at ClusterFS myself. Um, Hadoop is seems too heavyweight like it's kind of seems to be for less file system oriented uh and i don't know much about ceph um glusterfs has a couple of modes uh the nice thing is that a it can do an nfs server so you don't need a special client to read it on other servers uh so for Mm -hmm. example with our video storage server 
it would be all over the place. And then we just we have some front end web servers that would just connect to it by NFS and be able to access the files wherever they happen to be. So does GlusterFS, um, is it is it it's like the name implies, literally its own file system, or does it sit no, on top of it? No, it sits, uh, well, yeah, uh, so it, the client for it can be NFS or it has its own file system mounty thingy. Okay. Uh, and then the back end is you just, it stores it as big container blocks on top of whatever your regular file system is. Okay. Uh, so my plan was ZFS, multiple Zvols or whatever to to deal with it and uh what and about something like that. does uh does freebsd have something like drdb where it's uh we have something called hast or high availability storage uh or DRBD. but that's basically that's just um mirroring of a block device yeah 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 so that but what he want is distributed right where he wants to kind of combine the storage of a bunch of servers to make one virtual file system that has all the files so that you don't have to know which server it's on to be able to access it and in right. particular, that every file is on at least two different servers so that if one of the servers needs to reboot or dies or whatever, uh, the files are still accessible. And uh, that's why I was looking at GlusterFS because it also has a mode where you still store the files normally on separate on all the servers, but you yep. get one unified NFS file system I like that a lot. where you can read all the files. That's sweet. So you don't even have to kind of go all in on GlusterFS. You can just use it to kind of create a union FS of all of your systems. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Uh, and uh, there's been quite a bit of work about to get GlusterFS ported to FreeBSD, and so I've been playing with that. Uh, I got it all compiled and running and not crashing, uh, but I couldn't quite get it to actually do what I wanted yet. But uh, I kind of ran out of time. I haven't got to play with it yet. I'm hoping to have uh, a lot more free time over the holidays, quiet time, mm-hmm. get lots done. No kidding. I know exactly what you mean. All right. So I think uh, GlusterFS is the way to go there, uh, but that's mostly because I don't know much about Ceph. Uh, mostly kind of looked at GlusterFS because it seemed to be have the most active development towards getting uh, FreeBSD going. Mm. All right, Craig writes in uh, with kind of a semi-common question, and I'm not sure we've ever had a really great answer, but we'll take a shot at it. He says, Dear Alan and Chris, I'm sure it's probably been asked before, but I'd like to hear you talk about it. I'm currently a computer science student uh, with true aspirations to become a Linux system administrator. I currently work as a computer tech, and my undergrad... Uh, was actually reluctantly in marketing. Uh, is it in my best interest to continue my online traditional CS master's program or to learn on my own and then just earn some certs? Or should I try to do both or what? What do you guys think? Thanks for the shows, Craig. It kind of depends. The term computer science has kind of been muddied a bit, but in general, computer science means kind of the learning and designing the algorithms and, and writing. So it's it's computer programming, but it's not necessarily learning specific languages, but just learning the concepts and and more the architectural, like the math and stuff of it, and, and actually designing algorithms and so on. Uh, like the science of using computers to solve problems. And so it doesn't necessarily fit with a sysadmin role very well at all. Um, and that's why rather than getting a, a degree in CS myself, mm. I went to... Uh, like a, a community, a technical college, and got, uh, they actually took a course, that they called it network engineering and security analysis, but it was literally sysadmin. Uh, you learn sysadmin for Windows, Linux, BSD, and Cisco. Uh, and actually, when I took it, they also taught Novell in, in addition. Huh. And then we had like, so the classes were like, uh, how to set up like wireless, TCP IP, advanced TCP IP, and V6, uh, virtualization, uh, Windows admin, Linux admin, FreeBSD admin, um, and that kind of stuff. So if there's something like that, uh, where you're talking like a, a one or two year 
practical program yeah. of, where you spend your time sitting at a computer learning to sysadmin stuff, that would be much more valuable yeah. if that's the goal you have than uh, a program that's teaching you uh, like low-level C programming or something. Yeah, I would <laughs> tend to agree. not necessarily... Uh, like the most programming we did was we had a we did a little bit of shell scripting and we had a cl- a class on Perl and they've since added a class on PowerShell. Uh, but you know that's the kind of, yeah, of yeah. stuff you dealt with, and yeah. so it was twenty hours a week of actually sitting at a computer doing stuff. Uh, they kind of moved away from having too much type lecture content, even and it was just all right. So here's a scenario of a company, set up the group policies to do this and that thing. Or the Linux one was, you know, all right, set up these groups and these users and set it up and make it so they can print to this virtual printer, which was, you know, it would actually output like a postscript file that hmm. you could view as a PDF. But, you know, it kind of uh, was good. Uh, they've dumbed it down a little bit uh, because students nowadays aren't as smart. Oh. I don't know what happened. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, the last it's generation. I, I think it was, yeah, yeah. Um, People that grew up always having a computer mm-hmm. don't have the same interest in it. Fascination. It's, and, uh, yeah. like, when, when I was a student, there was no one in my class who didn't know how to add extra hardware to the computer. Right? Like, you know, the, everybody had bought a CD burner as an add-on to their computer and, and attached it or whatever. I knew how to add an extra hard drive or something. When I was teaching, there were a lot of people that had never opened a computer. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, some of them was just because they've always only ever had a laptop, maybe. Yeah, they're but more productized now, too. They're more complete, yeah, sealed basically, up. Basically, once, once it's not a new thing, it becomes like your TV. You mm-hmm. turn it on, entertainment comes out, you turn it off. You don't care how it works. I, I have but, a feeling people said this a lot about cars, too, you know, as they were Yeah, probably. we've definitely got away from the age where everybody tinkered on their own car. Yeah. And now yeah. we're the car people. That's what we put for computers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck, Craig. Uh, I, yeah. yeah I think. Uh, but, yeah, um, in particular, I just look at the curriculum for your CS Master program there, and if it doesn't talk about any of the stuff you need, the skills you need to be a sysadmin, then it's possibly not what you're after. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You I, know, I'm uh, I've kind of had the same niggling stuff, like, you know, uh, especially when I spent a week at the University of Cambridge in the U.K., uh, hanging out with all the people there, you know, doing research and just, you know, building a new hardware and stuff. It's like, oh, that's all, you know, if I ever went back to school, I'd want to come here and do this. And then it's like, that's really completely outside anything I've ever done before. And I it would, it would, you know, be, a, I'd have to learn a bunch of stuff before I could even start on this. And and Craig, you could check out a sponsor that doesn't sponsor this show, but linuxacademy.com like slash coders to get a discount. Uh, and they have a bunch of courses that you could kind of check out too, and a lot of them are uh, are uh, probably more up your line for system administration. Uh, yeah, but admittedly, right. I kind of did like he was suggesting and just uh, learning on my own, and then I got a certificate or certification or whatever. Uh, so what I did was I learned most of it on my own, and then I went and took the class. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. I had done some Windows admin, but I I wasn't that familiar with group policies. But I didn't under I I knew how Windows permissions work, but yeah. not group policies and stuff. Right, right. So I learned some stuff, and then the Linux I knew most of it, but uh, they filled in a lot of blanks. Yeah. Because uh, I had always been a BSD guy, so <laughs> a lot of the Linux stuff didn't make that much sense. I was like, I was always annoyed when I sat down a Red Hat Nine box and I'm like, there's no. GCC, how can you do anything? <laughs> what the hell? Well, this isn't a real computer. Yeah. 
Uh, all right, Alan. Uh, Mad Max writes in with a question about virtualization, specifically with the intent of cross-building. He says, I'm talking with the idea to create a web service where you would just submit your Git repo and it would do a cross-platform CI build. Which is uh, continuous integration. Uh, it's uh, so as they update compiling them? every time you make a change to yeah. make sure that your change doesn't break compiling. Right. Uh, and they would be for Windows, Linux, BSD, and maybe even the Mac. It appears uh, that Jenkins has the ability to work in master-slave configuration, so it seems like a perfect fit for the job. The problem I have is the slave part. The VM should be able to spin up fast and be persistent, so most of the code and object files are cached. Uh, cloud would even seem like a great so- cloud would even seem like a great solution. But I think no provider allows you to simply suspend VMs while VMs while not paying the full price. I don't I actually think. Um, it depends. Most of them. Uh, well, the VM is off and not using any CPU or RAM. You yeah. only pay for the storage yeah. uh, continuously. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. As far as storing the thing, you might want to look at um, uh, Ccache. Uh, there's there's a system for caching compile uh, binary stuff. Yeah. Uh, and you could use that to keep one consistent, like a persistent one of those, and have the VMs be able to lose their state in between. Uh, and also, if you're doing CI. I, yeah, there's yes and no there. It's like, do you want to waste the CPU time recompiling stuff that didn't change? But, you know, you just want to hope that the cache isn't going to interfere with anything. Uh, but, yeah, you could also look at using Ccache to externalize that. But as far as I know, most VM providers, if you turn the machine off all the way, uh, you're only paying for the storage, not uh, for the CPU time and stuff anymore. So he's kind of looking for a virtualization solution to pull this off. Um, right. And then he talks about, like, <clears throat> Docker or Jails. Um, so at FreeBSD, they use Beehive, so uh, a complete VM, and then they run uh, Jenkins inside of it, and it compiles the stuff. And they do that mostly so that they, uh, rather than doing different platforms, they do all the different versions of FreeBSD, right? So they uh, compile stuff on a bunch of different versions to make sure it all works, and compile the different versions on different versions, and, and all over the bunch of different mixes in that. Uh, so Jenkins is the one uh, I've heard of. I've heard some people are not happy with it, but... Hmm. Um, in general, it seems like it should work, and that yeah. Um, and then he mentions uh, his own private cloud using CloudStack or OpenStack, mm-hmm. uh, but it's probably something like KVM or uh, Beehive would be easier in that case. So yeah, uh, KVM and to spin up a bunch of them is probably easier. Uh, really, to s- build a web service like this, uh, you probably want to scale it uh, simply. So start with just one server, and you can spin up you know five VMs on it without a problem, and, and run your CI stuff. And then once it actually gets going, you can add more servers. Yeah. And so yeah, you might want to consider something like CloudStack or OpenStack if you're going to have to spin up a lot of VMs all the time. Uh, but at the same time, you don't want to overcomplicate it in the beginning, mm-hmm. and you don't want to you know, spend a lot of money on infrastructure yeah. when this service is just I, getting started. When you, when you suspend a, a droplet, I don't think you get charged for it when it's off. So and right, I think you still have to pay for the storage space so that they, they don't delete the files. I don't actually have any uh, just sitting off. But uh, right. the other thing is they have the API, so you could probably use the API to automate the spin-up and creation of new VMs, especially if they were just clones of existing ones. Uh, right. So there's a lot of ways uh, you could so do it So, yeah, way. what you would do, I think, in this case is uh, build uh, a Windows, Linux, BSD, and possibly, I don't know how you'd do a Mac one, honestly, but I don't think uh, Windows, would. Linux, and a BSD VM at DO, and then uh, when somebody submits a job... You would clone that image that you had created, uh, run it, do their work, and then throw it away. Mm-hmm. And then you could have uh, either a, your the web server could contain the CC cache or whatever, uh, or you could uh, instead turn it off and then turn it back on later. But you don't want to be maintaining a clone of uh, each OS for each customer that has ever done anything. 
Uh, but if you have them, if they're subscribing and they're paying for it, maybe. But uh, it's kind of big, though. It's definitely something you would be able to do with the DO API, I think. Uh, hmm. Or yes, you could just you know you Build rent one server, yeah. uh, from a regular server place or whatever, and then Get run a big five box VMs and on it. Run a bunch of VMs. Yeah, uh, especially if you know you're only gonna if you're gonna do one job at a time, then you can just have you know the Jenkins run on each of the the platforms and. Uh, do the job when it's done. You can do the next job, kind of thing. I know the OpenSUSE build service do, uh, spins up Zen on the back end to do test environments and stuff while it's building packages. So I know they're using a lot of automated Zen stuff. Yep. Good luck, Mad Max. All right, our last email comes in from Bart uh, with a pl- with a question that hankers back to our coverage of TrueCrypt. I know you haven't talked about this in a while, he says, since the death of TrueCrypt. But I'm really struggling to come up with a good cross-platform encryption solution that does hold disk encryption, so cross-platform and hold disk. Here's a quick description well, of the name. I guess the, the first problem with cross-platform hold disk encryption is there's not a cross-platform hold disk file system. Unless, what, are you going to use FAT32? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that's really the problem, uh, is that you know there is no hold disk encryption that's cross-platform. He would have uh, used true encrypt in the past, the, he says. Right, uh, but there's not really a file system that's cross-platform perfectly either yeah that's, that's that you would true. want to use really yeah, yeah and so that's where kind of where the, the problem is twofold there he says he wants to stay away from os specific solutions like bitlocker right or Delhi or uh what's the linux one they have a couple there's but, lux and there's a few yeah yeah uh and really yeah, that's the problem is that those are the only ones that really exist and you know there's really even not a, a an os agnostic file system that's very good. I'm honestly surprised no one's written a, a good open source basic file system that uh, you can use easily on, on Windows and Linux and everything. Yeah. Because, you know, FAT32 has kind of been the de facto for that and maybe a bit of NTFS, but, you know, NTFS on Linux and, and other platforms and the has Mac never is been just, perfect. It's not, it's, it can, I don't even own the Mac. If, I, don't, I don't know if you can read it. I think maybe you can read only on the Mac. I'm not sure what it does by default. On um, FreeBSD, there used to be a read-only one included. Now they just send you to the Fuse read-write one, the same one from Linux. But it's it works, but you wouldn't want to be using it full-time. Like it's, it's useful for reading data off a USB stick back and forth maybe, but it's really not something you'd want to be doing all the time. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm I'm struggling to come up with a, a really good solution other than uh, I mean, when it comes down to whole drive encryption, I guess so. There's really not that many offerings, and that's why you might be better off with something that's that's encrypting individual files that in a portable way. I mean, Bart, you say you don't want to use BitLocker. Um, I mean, I know there. See if you so you say you say in here that you don't trust it, and you're you've heard about issues after updates. Well, backup. Is is kind of your your solution there, and and the BitLocker is probably fine unless it's the U.S. government or Microsoft's themselves that you're worried about protecting from. If it's like casual loss of a laptop and somebody picks up a laptop, BitLocker is probably going to protect you there, assuming you're using a good password, right? So you also have to consider what is the scope of the protection you need. I would say the same thing with File Vault on the Mac or Lux on Linux, right? It's yep. it's it's good enough that unless it's somebody that is like a state-sponsored attacker, which is just probably not realistic, you're probably okay. Uh, and it, it, it could have there could there be updates that have broken BitLocker? Yeah, that sounds like a Microsoft thing, but also truth be told, you know, Windows 8.1 is getting pretty mature now and or Windows 7 is mature, so it's in that it's in that area now where it's getting pretty safe. And then you offset that risk with backups. Yeah, uh, and but I guess even for like a individual file encryption, it's there's not really a solution that 
is very portable. Like obviously you can GPG encrypt a file or whatever, but then yeah. you have to have it on the yeah. machines every time you want to access yeah. it. And yeah. it's kind of more encrypt decrypt. You can't really mount it in yeah. the volume. Yeah. So yes, I uh, TrueCrypt was quite compelling, uh, and it's but you know it's yeah. gone and and. It's something really hard to do correctly, and that's why there's not really a solution out there for it. Maybe the audience can send us in some of their recommendations of things that they've tried and that have worked well right. for them. Um, I, I'm just not sure that there is a good answer to either. this question currently. Text snap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or click the contact link. We are officially at inbox zero as of this recording, so it's a good opportunity to get your question in front of us, and we'll answer it on a future edition. Just go to Jupiter Broadcasting, click the contact link, choose text snap from the dropdown, or... Go over to the subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com. But with the emails all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Round. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show. But we still want to talk about them and give you some links to follow up on, on your own, after the show. And a lot of these links came from our subreddit over at links, nope, techsnap.reddit.com. Yep. And we're going to start with one of my favorite topics, lots of storage. It's a storage drive, a 6-terabyte hard drive face-off. So when you're talking storage, 6 terabytes is a lot of storage. And uh, this is from the uh, good guys over at Black ba- Black Backblaze. Boy, but you can tell I've been doing a lot of podcasts today. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I love when Backblaze does this kind of stuff. I don't actually use their service. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this kind of stuff makes me want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they showed uh, data stored on each uh, day, and uh, they give us some charts here on... Uh, so basically, they built two pods, each having 45 of the 6-terabyte drives, right. and basically did a face-off of the Seagates um, versus yep. the Western Digitals. Yep. And uh, as a, a control, they also threw in uh, H- one of their existing 45-4-terabyte uh, uh, drives of the, uh, the Hitachis. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of the problem with some of their data is that they they didn't start the two machines on the same day so yeah. they didn't fill at the same rate yeah but then they used the fill rate as the benchmark so they're like well you know the on average the seagate only wrote four terabytes a day instead of five like the western digital but how much of that is just because that's how much data there was that day and so on um yeah i was not 100 percent pleased with their methodology and specifically they failed the Brendan Gegg test of they didn't seem to ask the question, why was the Seagate a terabyte a day slower? Right. Yep. And that they, is the and benchmark. They basically yep. seem to, to be they're like, okay, so the Western Digital filled up faster, so we should buy Western Digital drives. Like we're, And uh, it's like, well, you didn't even look at why? <laughs> um, and this is all based on a sample of, of one machine? Yeah. It, it doesn't seem Of one pod, that yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, three different storage pods and all. <clears throat> right. Uh, yeah, it, I yeah. agree with um, you on that. So as far as they looked at it uh, on their factors, none of the drives failed on either, so they did, did no comparison there. Uh, after three months, none of them had any reviability issues or s- smart things. The costs were both the same. The Seagate drives were 7,200 RPM, so they used a little bit more electricity than the Western Digital drives, which were 5,400 RPM. Hmm. So that raises the bigger question of how were the Seagates slower? Yeah. Uh, or why? And that really emphasizes that question. It could have nothing question. to do with the hard drive, yeah. and that's why I'm a little iffy on their yeah, data. Yeah, really. Like if they had done a test where they set them up in a controlled environment and you know try to write this much data and you know see if which one if one of them can't keep up or something, but they didn't really. It was a little weird. Uh, now they say 
uh, part of the reason for preferring the Western Digital Drives is obviously um, the power savings multiplied by 45 drives per machine times 10 machines per cabinet adds up pretty quickly. Uh, you know, the saving heat and saving power by using the slower drive, but it really doesn't ask the question, why is the drive slower? Yeah. A good data point, uh, but lots of questions yeah. still. And I like your, you know, I, like you pointed out, you have to be able to answer why it's like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so they're ordering uh, more drives, and they're going to have five of each at the pods now, uh, and maybe we'll see what's going on. So you're saying they're going to open the pod bay door and install hard drives? Uh, yes. Uh, so they, they specifically mentioned that the Seagate drives perform well, albeit they load it a little slower, but it definitely seems like said. they haven't even looked in to see why. Yeah. Uh, they said they use a little bit more electricity than they like, uh, but they're not shut out because you know, they prefer not to have all one type of hard drive. Uh, they said the diversification is good, and we expect to order additional Seagate uh, six terabyte drives over the coming months well, and do those as they're well. They're going to base some purchases off the data, so they trust it. Yeah. Well, so basically, they bought the Western Digital drives, and maybe they'll buy more Seagate drives. Uh, they also say that uh, um, they also just ordered 45 of the Hitachi eight terabyte helium drives. Currently, those drives are still too expensive for them to buy a lot of them. Uh, but they're going to run one of them for to start testing it and you know see how the longevity is and so on. Uh, and then they also say that Seagate is beginning to ship their eight terabyte shingled magnetic oh, drives, yeah. uh, which are eight terabytes for only two hundred and sixty dollars a drive, oh. which is uh, quite cheap. Store uh, all the to, things. Yeah, like that's only uh, like three point two cents a, a gigabyte. Uh, but I think those particular drives might be more desktop oriented. I don't think they're the right. host to wear SMR. And they're like they're also, the they're like a weird speed, right? They're like 5,900 RPM or something, not even. Well, no, these are the shingled ones. They're, I don't even know if the RPM, how that works. I think I, think I read something about the like shingled they, ones they have, have a, a weird speed. They have a five, or they had a four terabyte drive that was the weird 5,900 RPM. Okay. Uh, but I don't, yeah, I don't know what the speed for the shingled yeah. magnetic okay. ones is at all. Okay. Uh, but they're looking, uh, uh, what they can do there, because that would be 360 terabytes in each pod, and they would love to have that, because mm-hmm. it means buying a lot fewer pods, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, but, Makes so yes, the interesting data, but uh, not the best benchmark of the two drives, honestly. Now, uh, this next roundup story made it in here really just because of this this headline. Researchers make BitTorrent anonymous and impossible to shut down. Uh, that's right. That's right. Brace yourselves. It's called Tribbler, and it makes BitTorrent anonymous and impossible to shut down. At least that's what a researcher says. Uh, Tribbler creates a new dedicated network for anonymy and anonymity. Why do I have such a hard time with that one? Uh, and it's in no way connected to the main Tor network. By using Tribbler, you become part of a Tor-like network and help others also become not anonymous. This means you no longer have exposure in any swarm, either downloading or seeding, he says. I guess the question is, how do they solve the problem of the fact that Tor is stupid slow? And, yeah, so uh, this is interesting, Alan. In the UI they have in the article here for Torrent Freak. Uh, but so you definitely do a lot fewer um, hops. Like with Tor, I think you always do at least yeah. five hops or but something. But you can slide it down to, to less uh, less speed, and then you are more hidden, or more speed and less hidden. Yeah, That's and uh, in their example, they're downloading a file from Vodo, which is a company that ships into movies uh, via torrents legally. Uh, so obviously they're... Yeah, there's not a need to be anonymous for that particular one, but you know they had to have something like that for their use case. Alan, uh, breaking news: ICANN has been hacked. 
Uh, it is devastating. Um, the entire internet has actually been shut down. Uh, so I don't know if anybody heard this. Uh, you probably didn't because your internet's been shut down. Uh, um, it's, it's horrible. So yeah, ICANN, which is the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers. Yeah. So they're the guys that uh, control, they're the guys that caused us to be suffering with all these new top level domains. Hey, like jbdev.community. Yeah. Uh, or recipes. So they, they come up, they control all the top level domains and technically have oversight over IANA, which gives out IP addresses yeah. then to things like Erin, uh, uh, which is the one that does it for uh, uh, North America. Anyway, uh, so they, they say, we believe a spear phishing attack was initiated in late uh, November 2014. It involved email messages that were crafted to appear to come from their own internal domain and were sent to members of their staff. The attack resulted in the compromise of the email credentials of several staff members. They then used that to access the centralized uh, zone data system Ouch. and uh, the wiki pages of uh, internal stuff, the Whois portal and the ICANN blog. Not the wiki. Uh, so the CZDS service is used by domain registrars and other interested parties to request access to the DNS root zone files and sensitive data associated with the user's account online. This provides hackers access to zone files and sensitive information such as names, postal addresses, email addresses, fax, you know, stuff that would be in your Whois. And uh, also possibly usernames and cryptographically hashed passwords of account holders. Uh, so they stole the database. Uh, luckily, it was properly hashed. Hmm. Um, it's still I'm not 100% clear on what this uh, CZDS actually does. but And, and a good old uh, Spheres Fishing attack right through that email. Alan, just get that email yeah. in there. Click but that link. It's like, just get that yeah, all set up. Shouldn't I can know how to deal with it? But, you know, the problem is that every company has secretaries and lawyers and not C computer savvy people. CEOs, yes. Uh, well, all right. I don't know if ICANN actually has a CEO. No, I'm just saying. It's sometimes yeah. just the executives that close yes, down Yes, it's, it's basically the non-computer people that cause all the problems. Yeah, usually. <laughs> usually it's true. All right. Uh, Google's end-to-end -end email encryption tool that we talked about a long time ago is getting closer. It's actually like more than a year uh, and a half. They posted the code to <gasps> GitHub for people to start auditing. Yes, so. yes. Uh, it's been up on GitHub for a little bit, uh, right? Uh, especially as we're recording this. I don't remember. Anyways, don't want to get the timelines confused, but uh, it's a work in progress, and it's going to snap in with Gmail. Uh, so I don't know, Alan. I'm going to give it a go when it comes. The only thing is it's going to be a Chrome plugin. Uh, so for those of you that aren't using Chrome. And so it's how useful is the end-to-end -end if the other end doesn't have it? Or, you know, in particular, so I saw this plugin in my Chrome, so I can read the email when I'm on this machine. But if I go to this other machine or read it on my phone, I can't read the email. So the hell. <laughs> Uh, with its key server, Google is taking a more centralized approach. Users' public keys will be automatically registered with the server, and the director will publish the key. When somebody then wants to send an encrypted email to another end user, the system will check the key directory for the right key and encrypt it. You can read more about the exact details uh, in a link in the article. Yeah, so this is uh, was supposed to be like GPG-compatible, mm -hmm. but implemented in JavaScript using elliptic curve keys so that they use less CPU time in the JavaScript. Uh, and then, yeah, just a Google-managed key server. So it's really not that different than GPG. It's just taking out a bunch of the manual steps, uh, although it really kind of takes out the key trust stuff, but it's just, you know, locking it to the email address uh, since Google, you know, that's the identity right. key for Google. Yeah. Um, where GPG is more along the lines of you're trying to tie an email address to an actual person, right? The idea with GPG is that you have key signing parties and stuff, and 
you know, when I got my key signed, I had to show people my passport and prove my identity. Uh, versus with Google's, it's just like, well, yes, this is the person that logged into yeah, this Google know, account, this person at gmail.com. Yeah. <clears throat> yep, uh, yep, that's a good point, Alan. That's a bit of a difference, isn't it? If, but if it only works for Gmail to Gmail, then that's not that useful. Hmm. How do external people register for this key server and so on? Alan, when you're a company like Amazon, a small little uh, glitch on the website can cost you quite a bit. Right. Well, in this case, it wasn't actually Amazon. Amazon was only tangentially related to the whole thing. Mm. So this was people who sell on Amazon Marketplace. Oh, yeah, yeah. Some of them use a certain piece of software from a third party to list the stuff on Amazon. Mm. Uh, so it helps you manage, you know, if you have a giant Amazon store, you don't want to be managing it with the Amazon web interface, right? Use the API. Uh, well, the app that uses the Amazon API to change the price of stuff in your store had a glitch in it and changed everything to be one British penny. <laughs> That's a good sale. Yeah. Uh, so Brennan Doherty, who's the chief executive of the Northern Ireland and New York-based Repricer Express, which is the name of the software, uh, said its investigation was continuing, but the problem had been corrected about an hour after it repriced everything to one cent. And mm -hmm. however, it took a uh, further few hours to get the incorrect prices <laughs> uh, reverted back to the original prices. Oh, that makes uh, me smile. In the meantime, people paced a lot of orders. Uh, Amazon canceled most of the orders that they found, and then uh, they're dealing with the ones that got through. Um, and uh, I guess Amazon's going to possibly compensate the sellers for this, apparently. I don't know. Uh, which is interesting because Amazon really had nothing to do with it. Yeah. It was... Uh, Random sellers using, like, as far as I know, not certified external software. Uh, maybe it's maybe it is certified by mm -hmm. Amazon for mm -hmm. use for them or recommended or something, mm -hmm. and so they had to take some culpability. That, that but, could be. Uh, you know, uh, well, well, and then we... on the on the Slashdot thread, people had questioned, you know, Amazon just canceling these orders. People entered a contract, but almost all advertisements contain. Uh, or terms of sales or whatever, contain a glitch where it's like, if it was obviously a typo in the price, uh, you can't force us to sell you it for one cent. Yeah. Uh, so Network World has an article about nine data breaches where somebody actually lost their job, which seems like yep. that almost never happens, but... Yeah, so I thought it would... Uh, apparently, most of these are actually government jobs. <laughs> well, That's there you interesting. go. Interesting. There you go. Uh, but I just thought that was uh, an interesting read. Yeah, Target. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, technically, the, yeah, the CIO and the CEO both ended up resigning. Neither of them actually got Texas fired. State so that's, but yeah, Texas State Duke. Comptroller, U, U, the Utah State Department of Technology Service. Yeah. Yeah, there's some gold health systems. Hi, Mark. Yeah. Yep. A good one, Alan. Yep. All right. So, uh, That'll be in the roundup. All right, Alan. And our last roundup story for this week uh, is sort of a warning for those that have QNAP NAS storages. Yes, or anybody that hasn't patched yet. But uh, the Shellshock exploit, which we probably thought we had heard the end of uh, months ago when everybody patched, <laughs> uh, but lots of people didn't patch and lots of people didn't realize that their external, uh, their appliance-type devices were uh, uh, vulnerable. Right. So the QNAP NAS devices have uh, bash on them and uh, reachable from the web interface, I suppose. And so they're uh, in the wild, they're currently being exploited and uh, all these NAS devices are being taken over. Jeez, that's the worst, you know, and and probably takes a while to pick up on your NAS getting hacked when you just got like a home NAS unit. It'd probably yeah. take a few days. Well, uh, it's never possibly, you know, company NASs and stuff. Right? Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. Small sure. office type NASs and so on. <clears throat> uh, but yeah, so you know, 
That, that's the interesting thing about a couple of these bugs, like heart bleed and shell shock and so on, is that people don't realize that every appliance they have has this technology in it as well. Oh, yeah. And that they don't really get updated the same frequency. You know, people can be very fastidious about installing the patches on their desktop or, you know, the Windows updates or Linux updates or whatever, but nobody thinks about updating the uh, firmware on their NAS no. uh, every, the first Tuesday of every month or it's whatever. It's an appliance. It's hard to think of it like that. I mean, we need like some well, sort of... Well, especially when you start looking at things like routers where yeah. it doesn't really have an OS so much. It's just a firmware. Right. And it's, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's TechSnap. Now, we'd love to have you join us live. The TechSnap show, especially today, it's a long show live. Like, you think TechSnap's long? You should check it out live. Plus, we talk with folks during the break, often engage with the chat room, and you get to help name our show. So join us over at jblive.tv. We do it at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is... Uh, 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC. Yep, and that's on a Thursday over at jblive.tv or jblive.info for the audio-only version. Go over to the website, look for episode 195, and you'll find the show notes for everything we talked about. Things are linked in pretty much chronological order of the show. You just scroll down past the downloads, and you'll find all that goodness there. Also, the contact page. Send us in your email questions and feedback. And just choose TechSnap from the drop-down. And last but not least, help contribute to the content over at the subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. All right, that take, that brings us to the end. Thank you, everybody. Don't forget RSS feeds, too, to get the show weekly. And uh, then you don't even have to worry about any of that stuff I just said. You'll just download it for you. And you can find links to that in the show notes as well. Okay, boom. That brings us to the end of this week's episode of TechSnap. We'll see you right back here next week.